we cannot solely rely on the purification which takes place in the meditation. I have already mentioned more than once, I think, that concentration is purification. And particularly if the meditative absorptions are practiced, purification takes place automatically, but only during the time of the meditation. And so I have mentioned the um, four supreme emotions as another purification factor which need to be practiced in everyday life. There's another mental factor which needs practicing in everyday life and which will also generate the same purification aspect. And if we do not support our meditation practice with our daily practice, which means in all our situations, not just when sitting on the pillow, then we will not have sufficient strength of practice. We won't have sufficient strength to lead a truly spiritually growing life. So we need to look at our own whole life situation as one of practicing the purification of heart and mind. It is a fact that spiritual life is nothing else but that. Spiritual life is nothing else but the purification of one's thoughts, of one's emotions, of one's actions. There is nothing else to be done. And as this purification takes place, we have the necessary resultants from that. One resultant is meditation, the concentration in meditation. Results from the purification, but on the other hand also gives us a purification. The other result which we have from our practice of this purification is that our, my, our life is much, much easier. We do not resist and reject so much. We do not get bothered so much. We do not have so many hindrances that obstruct our peace. Naturally, this is always a slow process, little by little. But unless we initiate the process, nothing will happen. We have to initiate the process and keep it going. And as we keep it going, we will naturally see some results. It's impossible not to find results if we look back. However, we can't look back all the time. That would be comparable to planting maybe a few seeds in the garden, a few carrot seeds, and then digging them up every day to see whether the carrots have finally come. <laughs> that, of course, doesn't work. We'll have to let the process take place. But while this process takes place, we have to 
cultivate it. If we leave those seeds all alone there, they probably won't amount to much. We have to at least water them, or maybe even we'll have to manure them. Well, this is a cultivation that we have to do with our heart and mind. Planting the seeds, you might say, is the uh, meditation retreat. But if we do not then keep on cultivating those seeds, they're going to possibly rot. And uh, even if they don't rot in the ground, they're not going to start growing. So this purification process, which is uh, initiated by us, ourselves, and has to be kept going, has actually its own momentum. Just as a seed that's being looked after properly will grow into a carrot, if it's a carrot seed, so this process has that same momentum. If we do our job with it, it will continue to grow. And we can also say probably with uh, uh, quite... um, with uh, certainty that the further along the habit of purification has come, the easier it is and the more we will see the results. In other words, when the carrot has already poked its head through the ground, we can see there's a carrot and we can watch it getting bigger and bigger. It's uh, very easy to see. While it's still under the ground, it's a bit of a Uh, hope and uh, and hazard whether it's actually going to make it. So we do have to realize, though, that it's strictly one's own uh, responsibility. Whether we want to do it or not, that's our own choice. Nobody can do it for another. Even if we ourselves might be extremely... um, attached or interested in someone else and really would like to help them from the bottom of our heart. We can do nothing but planting seeds. Maybe we can just offer an idea, but the rest is always up to the person themselves. And the same is, of course, valid for us. Nobody can do a thing for us that we don't do ourselves. We can... Even the questions, as we get along in our practice, we we realize that we have all the answers. It's only sometimes easier if we can get the confirmation that it's really the correct answer from someone else. But basically, we have the whole thing within. Everything lies within. If we didn't have this capacity to um, come to full enlightenment, the Buddha would have wasted 45 years of his life because he taught people just like us, very ordinary people. And he taught them because he realized and knew that everybody has that potential. Everybody has the potential 
to clear the mind of all of its obstructions. And the guidelines he gave are nothing but a recipe. So if we want to use them, that's fine. If not, that's up to us. These guidelines are ex extremely explicit. I don't know of any other teaching on this spiritual path that has such explicit instructions. And this is, of course, a great help because if we actually follow the instructions, we can't go wrong. The only problem is that most people have their own viewpoints and following explicitly exact instructions isn't exactly our cup of tea. We like to put something of our own ideas into it. But even that is not um, a direct uh, um, invitation to disaster. If we understand where these instructions are supposed to take us, and using a little bit of our own inventiveness to help us along doesn't hurt at all as long as we know what the essence of this path is really about. And that is something that the essence is something that is um, very often not only misunderstood but not really we don't really want to know about it because it so goes so much against our grain. It's so much the opposite of that, what we have been believing so far. So we don't need to look at the, at the uh, summit, so to say, or at the goal because it isn't what we're having in mind at this time. What we have in mind is peace and happiness and uh, some enjoyable uh, experiences. So if we, if we don't look at the summit, we can watch our steps. If we were climbing a mountain because we have heard that the top of the mountain is a place where the air is unpolluted, where the view is magnificent, where everybody is happy. And that gives us cause enough to start climbing that mountain. And we even get instructions how to get up there. But all the time we take a look, not where we're going, but at the top of the mountain. We want to see it already. We want to know what that top of the mountain is like. Well, first of all, it's usually shrouded in fog and we can't see it anyway. <laughs> and so we, we can't see a thing. And all the time we're doing that, we're losing our footing along the path. So the essence that we know at this time is to be totally connected to each moment. And this is the mental factor which brings purification. And we all know it under the name of mindfulness. And even that name gives rise to so many confusions. 
what is mindfulness? Is it concentration? What is, what is it? What do you do with mindfulness? Well, mindfulness can be said maybe in one sentence that you've got your mind full of the moment. It is this mountain climbing. If we have decided to do this, if we're not satisfied with what we have found in the valley, it's too pedestrian down there, we do want to have something which is a little less pedestrian, which will give us an uplift and uh, which will give us a uh, feeling of being, of transcending, then there's nothing to be done except to watch each step. And to watch each step is what we do, for instance, in our walking meditation. Okay, that's mindfulness of walking. If we watch each breath, that's mindfulness of in-breath, out-breath. Now this mindfulness is being trained in the meditation practice. And as it is being trained in the meditation practice, it eventually will result in concentration. Now this is a point that's being asked over and over again. Mindfulness is attending to that what is happening now, but to that what we want to attend to, not to just anything, but to what we want to attend to. And then, as we become more and more practiced in meditation to attend to that what we have chosen, it will result in concentration. On the Noble Eightfold Path, where there are eight steps, the last three concerned with the meditation, with the concentration, are right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So you can see these are different things, not the same. One leads to the next. Right effort leads to right mindfulness, and right mindfulness leads to right concentration. And our meditation practice eventually will have to result in right concentration because that's what meditation is for. It is a training in mindfulness, but it needs to result in concentration. However, if we imagine that we are sitting in a meditation retreat, that is fine, but that we only do uh, once in a while. Most of the time, we are spending our time in daily living where possibly not even two hours of meditation are on the schedule. Well, let's say we sleep seven hours a night, we meditate two hours a day, which are nine hours, and then we've got another 15 hours left. Now, during those 15 hours, we feel that we are having duties and obligations, responsibilities, or whatever it may be that we are concerned with. But if we lose all track of our spiritual intentions and therefore lose all track of mindfulness, we cannot expect to sit down for those two hours that we do sit down and then resurrect that mindfulness. So we need to support that 
in all our activities. And as we do that, it will become stronger and stronger. It will become habitual. That what we do all the time becomes habitual. And it is always a great advantage to cultivate good habits. Now, this is the best habit that we could possibly cultivate because without the mindfulness of ourselves, we will never recognize ourselves and therefore we'll never be able to change ourselves. Mindfulness has four foundations, and the first one is the body. Now, the body is that which is easiest to see, and it is that which is also active in many ways in everyday living. So there's no lack of mindfulness subject. This body is moving about, it's doing all sorts of things. And our first uh, consideration can be a very worldly one, namely, when we are mindful of our bodily actions, we will make far less mistakes, we will have far less accidents, we will be far more efficient, and everything will work much quicker and smoother, and we can look after things in a very um, easy manner. But the Buddha said, the one way for the purification of beings, for the diminishing of pain, grief, and lamentation, for the final elimination of all dukkha, for entering the noble path, for realizing Nibbana, is mindfulness. Now, if it is the one way for the purification of beings, even just watching our physical action should have a purifying effect. Why is this so? The purifying effect comes about because when we are mindful, we cannot possibly have a negative thought. Luckily, we can only do one thing at a time. Although people who are very busy, uh, sometimes in offices where three phones or five phones are ringing and uh, two secretaries are coming in and uh, three people want to talk to one, they have the idea that they're doing ten things at the same time. But that's only an illusion. One can't do it. One does them in such quick succession and has the thoughts in such quick succession that appears to be simultaneous, but it never is. We, can, we have one thought at a time. They are very fleeting, as we know, so they appear to, uh, they're, not, they're following each other so quickly that they appear to be there together. So when we're mindful, that's a mental formation, that's a thought process. When we're paying full attention to a physical action, nothing negative can arise. And when nothing negative can arise, we have a moment of purification. Now that purification can be increased and increased the more we pay attention to what we're actually doing. It has the worldly benefit, naturally, of doing things in a better way, but it has the spiritual benefit of purification. It has another spiritual benefit, which can arise in or out of meditation, namely the first entry into insight. And the first entry into insight which leads to final liberation is the understanding 
that mind and body are two and not one. And when we use mindfulness of our actions, it will become clear to us, just as it should or could in the walking meditation or watching the breath, that the body is acting but the mind is knowing. And while the body can't know, the mind can't act. So there's two, there are two things uh, in operation which are interdependent but are still quite separate. And this is to be seen not only as an intellectual exercise, but this can be seen with mindfulness quite clearly. Mindfulness is that pinpointed attention to what is really happening. And when we're watching ourselves opening a door, we know that the mind had had to say, open that door. The hand will never do it unless the mind said, do it. Or the hand will also desist from doing it if the mind says, no, let better not open the door. So we can recognize that as our first entry into realizing that this person whom we think of as a total entity actually has um, a master and a servant, a master in the mind and a servant in the body. Now our attention, our mindfulness on our physical actions is only one aspect of mindfulness and it isn't always appropriate. There are moments when the mindfulness on the physical action is not appropriate, totally inappropriate, because something else is of greater importance. So there are times when, for instance, it is much more important to pay attention to our feelings. When we become mindful of our feelings, we will know them, but we will also know that we do not have to react to them. And as we, as we get to know that and as we get to practice that, there are far less emotional accidents. When we watch our body, we'll have far less physical accidents. When we watch our emotions, far less accidents in that line. Mindfulness can be considered to act like the brake acts on a car. If we're driving a car without brakes, well, that's an invitation to suicide. If we have brakes and we see a dangerous curve coming, we will step on those brakes to slow the car down and to give us a chance to turn the steering wheel into another direction to escape from the danger. Mindfulness does exactly that. We step on the brake of mindfulness and we see that there is a dangerous situation arising, dangerous in so far that we may be reacting in a negative manner. We may be reacting with anger or with, um, um, with worry or with grief or with um, unhappiness or with uh, dislike, envy, any of these fear. When we see that coming, we step on the brake of mindfulness to slow ourselves down, to slow the reaction down, so that we can actually turn ourselves into a different di direction, so that we can 
escape from that danger. It means, just like manipulating a car in the safest possible way, we manipulate our own reactions. We do not have to live with the reactions which we have used up so far, which are very often pre-programmed because we've used them so often that we're so used to them that they're constantly re-arising when a similar trigger arises. It's not necessary. Any meditator knows that one can drop a thought and get back to the breath if one wants to. One can realize when one looks at the thoughts that they are not useful. So we do not have to believe that we have to react when the reaction arises. Mindfulness is our only guardian. It's the one that guards us against these reactions and difficulties where we do not become happy, where we are not at ease with ourselves, where everything seems heavy and difficult, where we are not satisfied and contented. It is the guardian that we have to arrange for ourselves. Nobody will guard over us, although we often think, wouldn't it be nice? And we often look for someone to do it for us. It just isn't possible. Our reactions are our own. Our guardian is our own. And also, in order to mature and grow up, we have to look after our own ways of doing and thinking. So our second base of mindfulness are our feelings, which are the emotions. And as we become aware of them and learn not to react, we can also learn to substitute. And the substitution is, for instance, our change from an unwholesome emotion to a wholesome one. The wholesome ones, which I've already described as the four supreme emotions, loving-kindness, compassion, joy with others, and equanimity, which are the, the ones which will always be, always give us peace. They will always give us a smooth and harmonious way of living. We can always rely on those four. Any one of the four is reliable. Our other emotions are totally unreliable. And they are usually doing us harm. So when we have enough mindfulness to stop ourselves from reacting instinctively, impulsively, then we also have enough time to substitute, to change, to not go along with what originally arose. Our third aspect of mindfulness is our thought process. Now, that often also needs uh, attention because thinking is, of course, a very popular habit and uh, it goes on all the time and with this thinking we may sometimes become aware of the fact with 
strong mindfulness that this is very energy consuming that is it's very debilitating and non-productive most thinking that we do is non-productive if we have something to think about like to build a house or how to get a vegetable garden going or how to answer a letter anything like that that can be productive but the discursive thinking which goes on in the mind and with which we are familiar because of um, our meditation practice that is totally unproductive and as we become aware of it through mindfulness we can realize that not only is it energy consuming but it is also quite um dukkha producing there's no happiness in it there's nothing in it it is um tiring and this is a reason why people are so tired in the evening we may never have pushed anything harder than a pencil all day and yet we're dead tired in the evening from what from thinking the body hasn't done anything maybe got up from the desk and went to the car with the car to the garage from the garage and to the dining room and that's it dead tired thinking it's a very tiring occupation and particularly tiring when it is unproductive when it doesn't serve any particular purpose so we can notice that in ourselves and we may be able to stop ourselves from using our energies in that manner from wasting our energy but there's more to be seen than that we can also see through this uh, mindfulness that the thinking arises without our wanting it to arise now the same happens of course in meditation but we can see that in daily living also if we just use that slowing down that mindfulness gives us so if it arises without our doing anything about it who owns it who is the thinker this is a very important inquiry because if the thinking is happening and nobody really wanted it and one has finally understood that it doesn't bring anything and yet it keeps on arising just like it does in the meditation where one would much rather have it not arise or who's doing all that this is a very important inquiry to make we can see when we watch the thoughts also in daily living how we can't even keep them maybe we wanted to say something to somebody and the thoughts already disappeared and the thought from this morning is long gone and the thought from 10 minutes ago is gone and we can see that also that not being able to hang on to it and that it's all disappearing we gain insight into impermanence through mindfulness if we use our meditation practice to gain concentration we can use our mindfulness practice to gain some insight 
doesn't have to be doing meditation. We should use all our hours for some spiritual endeavor. Now, that too is not always appropriate. Obviously, when there are situations in one's daily life where that sort of thing is not appropriate, where one can't uh, watch one thinking and realize how impermanent it is because other things are confronting one, then comes a very important aspect of mindfulness to realize whether the content of the thought is wholesome or unwholesome. And there the Buddha taught the four supreme efforts. These are called supreme efforts because they bring supreme benefits. And they go like this. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, to make a wholesome thought continue, which has already arisen. So when we see that the content of the thought that we are thinking is wholesome, keep it going. When we see that the content of the thought is unwholesome, not to allow it to continue, to change it. However, it's also very important to become mindful enough to realize when an unwholesome thought is in the offing. Now this takes more mindfulness, but every unwholesome thought has, so to say, a forerunner, a forerunner of a feeling. And the feeling is heavy. It has an aspect of um, uh, heaviness, darkness, Um, grayness, lack of buoyancy in it. It is something that is sort of like a closing down. Wholesomeness is often, um, unwholesomeness is often compared with contraction. Everything contracts because the unwholesomeness takes over and we can't expand. We're contracted naturally. The mind that's contracted cannot gain clarity, cannot gain wisdom. So if we can become aware of this feeling that is coming ahead of the unwholesome thought, we don't have to allow it to happen. We can immediately switch to something wholesome before it has even arisen. Now, this kind of feeling can become so strong that it can go to depression. We don't have to allow those things to happen in us. Dukkha is, but that doesn't mean that we have to become unhappy about it. It just is, like everything else that is. And personal dukkha is no worse than universal dukkha. It's all one and the same. It just is. So when I this un, unwholesome thought is going to arise and we find we can notice that feeling immediately switch to something wholesome because we know now from experience probably already that this feeling brings something that is not going to make us happy the inner happiness is not a um, an imposition on top of something else 
it is clarity and purity. So when we have physical action, feeling, the thought process, and the thought content, these are our four bases, our four aspects that we can watch in daily living. The purification takes place because the negativities are either diminished or temporarily eliminated. The gaining of the noble path takes place because of insight that arises, the insight of mind and body, the insight of impermanence, and the insight of non-ownership. Also the insight that although dukkha is, there's no reason to become totally immersed in it. It just is. Mindfulness will not only be an addition, if we practice it in daily life, not only be an addition to our strength in meditation, but it will change our whole outlook in daily life. We don't become so involved in whatever is happening. We are constantly on the alert that we use the wholesome emotions, that we use the wholesome thinking. We don't get involved in just anything. Now, we are, most of us anyway, are interested in having health food for the body. And some people are very, very uh, particular about what they put into their body. Brown rice, brown sugar, and all the rest of it. But we should be at least that particular of what we put into our mind. We need health food for the mind much worse than we need health food for the body. And that we can only do with mindfulness. There's no other way of doing that. Mindfulness is our only uh, help in that. It's the only aspect of ourselves that will make that possible. So the, the mind as the um, master of our lives, being guarded against thinking and reacting in an unwholesome manner, will not only purify, but will eventually be shining like a jewel that it is. And that we are not aware of when we cover it over with unwholesomeness. The less of the unwholesomeness is allowed in, the less we give the mind a um, scratches, bumps, and we, the less we have deep ruts out of which it's difficult to raise oneself again. Our mind is a very habitual, um, habitually thinking. If we are habitually thinking in positive ways with uh, love and compassion and uh, with wholesome thinking, the mind is quite happy to carry on like that. But if we allow it to do the opposite, well, it's quite happy to carry on with that too. 
So we can see that from our own experience. The Buddha did not want anyone to believe anything. He wanted everyone to check it out with their own experience. It will uh, give the greatest support for our meditation practice if we practice it in daily life. It will give the greatest support for our spiritual uh, growth if we practice mindfulness in daily life. It is not a substitute for meditation. It is an addition to meditation. It can bring not only our smooth way of operating in daily life, but it can bring insight. And as it brings insight, the smoothness of our life becomes greater. We become our own guardian. We are objectively engaged with ourselves. We do not have ourselves always as a center subject, but we are looking at ourselves in a more, as a more as a neutral observer. This observer is the one that looks after us. Without that observer, who's going to look after us? We think we're looking after us, but if we don't watch what we let into the mind, there's nobody that's looking after us. So this is the observer that has that capacity. And with that capacity, as it becomes more and more a habit, we are really safe. It is a safety feature which we are giving ourselves. Because this is the only way that we will know what is actually within and how we can change it. Mindfulness is the one way, the Buddha said. And he also said that if one practices it for seven years, one will become enlightened. And then he said, no, even for six or five or four, no, even for three or two or one year. Then he said, no, even for 11 months, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 months. And he said, no, even for seven days. Now, practicing mindfulness for seven days means constantly, all the time, and perfectly. So it may take a little longer for us because it's not that constant and not that perfect but it is the one mental formation which has the greatest value and the one that we need to supplement our meditation practice with. So now you can ask some questions. Bring about? Bring about a joy because you 
you find it hard to accept the impermanence in your own practice. Is that what you said? Impermanence in general, in everything. Okay. <laughs> well, when one finds it difficult to accept impermanence, uh, it means that the, the mind is actually trying to go against the law of nature, which brings nothing but dukkha. So the um, understanding that one is creating one's own dukkha should be helpful. And also seeing that everything is impermanent, seeing the, the breath, the thought, the feeling, uh, the, the walking, everything to be that one can really put one's finger on, nothing can remain the same, that in itself brings a feeling of um, lightness with it because if all this, these things were to be solid, how would we be able to deal with them? Now, for instance, if all one's unhappy feelings, if all one's, um, one's life, the whole lifespan, if that was permanent, how can one deal with that? How can one deal, for instance, with even the thought of having to live five or ten thousand years? I mean, it's an impossibility. So the uh, impermanence makes it possible to deal with the dukkha. Needs to be really looked at. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, but that is not that is not actually um, the the uh, essence of impermanence. Um, I read an article once, and uh, of all places, it was in a Buddhist magazine, and uh, it uh, justified the constant change of relationships because everything is impermanent. Well, the less said, the better. Uh, the, the, the same applies to practice. This is a mental formation. The mental formation of determination is lacking. And the mental formation in the other one, the mental formation or the, uh, the virtue, determination is one of the virtues, one of the ten virtues. Uh, the, ten, the, the virtue of faithfulness, all these things have part and parcel of it. That impermanence is there, yes, Impermanence is, in essence, the, that the mind itself, even though it has an object of concentration, the mind itself still is moving. And that on, only noticeable with a great deal of mindfulness, of course. But there is nothing that isn't moving. I mean, this, this, this little globe of ours is moving constantly, or we don't notice it. I mean, there is another absolute... Um, uh, example of the fact that we are always operating under an optical illusion. This thing is upside down and we are sitting straight up. <laughs> so it's an optical illusion that we are operating under. So the, uh, the when, when we say that when we justify a negative behavior or negative uh, um, emotions with the fact that everything is impermanent, that doesn't work. That's the wrong way around, right? Hmm? Yes. Not necessarily in the East. 
that in a Buddhist in a Buddhist country, anicca dukkha anatta is so often bandied about that nobody even thinks about it much. Uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self is so often mentioned that uh, one uses it almost like a figure of speech. And instead of instead of trying to gain access to its reality, it's used as a figure of speech. So it has to be it has to be investigated in a very um, solid manner. One needs to really see how it applies to oneself, and not say, "Well, yes, of course, you know, Anicca." <laughs> Yes. I have a question about karma, and it's something that's been really bothering me for a lot of years. It's um, like to the degree it's still hard enough to accept the stuff I create, or say you know the things I must have created from my maybe even other lifetimes or so. But where it gets really hard for me is um, when explaining it for say certain in terms of oppression or in terms of injustices that happen. For example, say, you know, um, in South Africa, where I'll say a whole black population too, you know, kind of, they must have been really doing a lot of terrible things, you know, to get into a situation like that, or in the West, mm. or in Nicaragua, or any, any, I mean, there's so many situations, you know. And it's something that, it bugs the hell out of me because I don't know, because I, I you don't have to just you don't have to justify it you don't have to justify it people are um, unfortunately born with six roots three roots of wholesomeness and three roots of unwholesomeness and if they don't culti- cultivate the wholesome ones the unwholesome ones take over as an example, for instance, I mean, there's no justification necessary. Karma just is. But um, uh, in, in Africa, for instance, the tribes used to kill each other with a vengeance. They still do. And I'm talking about the black people. They kill each other, and they don't do it quite as much anymore as they used to. But there used to be constant warfare and killing. Well, I mean, it's impossible to put karma together exactly I've done this and therefore I get that. But we can be quite sure that bad karma has been created by everyone. And this is the danger that we live in. We also have created bad karma. And maybe it's not fruiting in this lifetime, but who knows when it's going to fruit. We are, karma has to be seen also, the karma making, as a danger. This is one of the steps on the inside path to see the danger so that eventually we will jump out of this burning house and leave our toys behind. Yes? Well, the greatest evildoers are sitting in our own heart. And uh, 
the outside evildoers, they are really of very little consequence. Um, I will tell you a, a story that illustrates that, how the Buddha dealt with this. And the Buddha actually was a reformer, a reformer of what in those days was called the Brahminical religion. Nowadays it's Hinduism. And uh, the Brahmins are and were the priest caste. And they made their living out of um, uh, saying prayers and uh, convocations to the gods and took some money for that. And they... um, put ghee and milk over the stone gods and the people thought that this was uh, assuring them a way to heaven. The Buddha said, that's all nonsense, you've got to practice yourself. So many of the Brahmins were very, very, uh, hated the Buddha very much because he was undermining their livelihood. And uh, many of the Brahmins also became followers of the Buddha, but many were very against him. So the story goes that one day the Buddha was giving a discourse and a Brahmin came along, and he walked back and forth in front of this of the Buddha while the Buddha was talking, which in itself is already extremely impolite. And then when the Buddha uh, had a pause, made a pause, the Brahmin started abusing the Buddha. He said he was uh, p- preaching the wrong doctrine. He should be chased out of the country. Um, he was uh, in... He was instrumental in getting the young men away from their families because they were following him as monks and uh, was very abusive language. And uh, the Buddha just waited till he finished. When he ran out of this, all this abuse, the Buddha said to him, Brahmin, do you sometimes have guests in your house? And the Brahmin said, yes, of course I have sometimes guests in my house. The Buddha said, and if you have guests in your house, do you offer them food and drink? The Brahmin said, well, of course I offer them food and drink. The Buddha said, and what if they don't accept it? To whom does it belong? The Brahmin said, well, it belongs to me, of course, belongs to me. The Buddha said, that's right, Brahmin, it belongs to you. So what other people put out belongs to them. You don't have to pick it up. The only protection that's necessary is in one's own mind. So if somebody is abusive or unpleasant, hurtful, the only reply or the only retort to that is compassion. That person must be very unhappy. And if you check it out, you will find that that person is extremely unhappy. Yes? How do they do that?
I can't, I can't quite relate to that. I don't know what the entities are, nor do I know what the forces are. I know what the income tax bureau is, but that's about all. And if one, if one makes enough money, one's got to pay taxes. <laughs> and I know what the post office is, you've got to pay for your stamps. But otherwise, I don't know. And if you make a, have a parking offense, you've got to pay for it. And that's quite all right. If you have a disagreement, yes. if you go to court, you mean? Mm-hmm. If you go to court? Yeah, well, going to court is a, is a definitely the wrong thing to do under all circumstances. Well, money doesn't have any laws at all. Um, money, uh, money has uh, only the law that you allow it to have. In, the, in reality, it's bits of paper or uh, small bits of metal. That's all it is. And it doesn't have any, any, any uh, law of its own. Uh, it becomes an, a matter of an exchange commodity exchange it for that what you need. But uh, the best way to deal with it is to need as little as possible. And then you don't have to worry about these things. Yeah, but that's the other person's problem. That's not your problem. That's just like the Brahmin started abusing. That's his problem. That's not, that's, not, that's not the problem of the person that's uh, getting it. That's the other person's problem. You have to remember to distinguish between what you're doing and what other people are doing. The only thing that's of any interest is what you're doing. Nothing else is of any interest. Everything else is conjecture and uh, concept. Only what you're doing, that matters. And you can deal with whatever arises if you're pure. But that's all. Nothing else matters. And practice is yours, not what other people do with their money. I mean, probably do some fancy things with their money, but that's their problem, isn't it? Anything else? So what are you going to do about the rainforest in South America? All right. Well, why don't you why don't you think that when you meditate and become peaceful, that you're going to have some influence? I mean, it's highly unlikely you're going to have some influence on the rainforest in South America. These are all escape routes to think about such things. These are all escape routes to get away from one's own dukkha. You can't practice the rainforest in South America, but you can practice your own purification. That's all. And if some more people would do that, 
they mightn't tear down the rainforests. But eventually, um, there's always somebody that does something wrong. If you have ever learned history, which I'm sure you have in the school, all we ever learned in school were all, were all the things that people were doing wrong. The history books are full of it. So, what are we going to do about it? That's another escape route. Not to look at one's own dukkha and not to do one's own practice. If one has influence, by all means use it. If one hasn't, do it where the influence of you, where your own influence reaches. Your own influence reaches to heart and mind, to one's own heart and mind. If one has more than that influence, wonderful. If one hasn't, unnecessary expenditure of energy. <laughs> Just let it rest. <laughs> Can't do anything about it. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Let gratitude and joy arise in your heart for the wonderful opportunity that you have as a human being under the best circumstances to practice the Dhamma. Let this gratitude and joy fill you, realizing how rare and valuable this situation that you're in is. Now reach out with that gratitude and joy to the person nearest you here in this hall. Gratitude for the person's presence as your support in this practice. And joy for his or her ability to gain spiritual wisdom. Joy with that person's attainments
and now reach out to everyone here. Gratitude for their presence, for their support of your practice, and joy with everybody's attainments of insight into reality, of making good karma, of having this opportunity, having that joy arise within your heart. Now think of your parents, be grateful to them. They looked after you when you were too small to do it yourself. Have joy with all that which is good in their lives. Fill them with that gratitude and that joy. Think of your nearest and dearest people. Be grateful to them for being in your life. Be joyful for all they can do and have. Fill them with that gratitude and with your joy for their abilities. Think of your good friends. Be grateful that they are your friends. Let this gratitude really arise in full bloom. Reach out to them with it and have joy for their abilities, for their happiness whichever way they find it. Fill them with that joy. Think of anyone whom you find difficult to love. 
be grateful to that person for that learning experience showing you where you can change have joy with that person's abilities and opportunities and let go of any animosity Now think of your neighbors, people at work, people you meet here and there, people in shops who serve in restaurants, post offices. Be grateful that all this makes your life much easier. Have joy in their presence. Have joy in their attainments and abilities. Fill them with that gratitude and the joy. Now think of all the people who have ever done anything for you in your life, helped you, contacted you, cared for you, and let gratitude well up in your heart to all these people that have been in your life and have been of some support. Be joyful of their presence and have joy with whatever they have joy in. Fill them with your gratitude. Fill them with this joy for their fulfillment of their wishes. Now put your attention back on yourself. Realize the softness and gentleness of gratitude. How it creates a feeling of well-being in heart and mind. 
be joyful about your practice that this is the path where peace and happiness arise May beings everywhere find peace and happiness.